The number of foreign students attending college or graduate school in the U.S. grew by about 60% between 2001 and 2016, solidifying the nation's position as the leading destination for international students studying abroad. But that growth has since stalled and may even have reversed, raising alarm at colleges that have come to rely on a steady stream of foreign students to remain viable. Are we entering a recession in international student enrollment? If so, what will be the consequences? And who or what is to blame? I'm Marty West, editor of Education Next, and my guest today is Alex Usher, president of Higher Education Strategy Associates, a Toronto-based consultancy. Alex is the author of the new article, Has President Trump Scared Away All the Foreign Students?, that will appear in the fall 2019 issue of the journal and is available now at educationnext.org. Alex, welcome to the EdNext podcast. Hi there. So it's great to have you. I guess we should start out by talking about what exactly internationalization in higher education is. You uh, argue that it brings many benefits for American colleges and universities. What is it and what are those benefits? Well, internationalization can mean a lot of things. I mean, it can mean um, making your own curriculum a little more, uh, you know, globally focused. It could mean study abroad. Um, the type of internationalization that I wrote about in the article is about, um, uh, you know, attracting international students to uh, colleges here in North America. And, um, and obviously that has a uh, it has been pursued with greater vigor in the last decade or so, mainly because of the financial implications. Um, international students have taken the place that out-of-state students used to take, um, you know, that they're not subject to the same kinds of restrictions on tuition. So for public institutions, it can be particularly those in, in states where the local population may be declining, the demographic decline. Um, you know, it's it certainly become a lot more interesting to take those. Certainly when the when the recession happened around 2008, 2009, 2010, what you saw were a lot of flagship institutions suddenly go from having, you know, undergraduate international uh, cohorts of maybe 2 3%, um, and those moved very quickly to sort of 15 20%. Um, you know, Michigan State, uh, Washington, those kinds of places, all of a sudden, you know, they'd always had very big international graduate student populations um, because, you know, you take the best students from everywhere and you pay for them as, as grad students, right? You give them stipends, you give them tuition waivers. This is different. What happened after 2008 was people going after a primarily undergraduate market and doing it often for financial reasons. I mean, it's not without, you know, other benefits. You, you, it's, you know, all things considered, it's probably better to have a more diverse campus than a, a less diverse one. Um, but certainly one of the big um, incentives was a, a financial one. Yeah, so here you're distinguishing between two different rationales for the internationalization of enrollment. Talent acquisition, as you refer to it in the article, yep. which has been a longstanding practice at the doctoral level in particular, and then revenue enhancement, which is a more recent development. When did revenue enhancement as a strategy emerge? Did it come first in the United States or, or really elsewhere? Uh, the first country that uh, that did it as a policy was the UK, and that's sort of around 1979. And they, you know, at the time they had uh, free tuition for domestic students. And the Thatcher government, uh, fairly early in its mandate, I guess it was probably 1980, made a, a decision to say, no, you know what, we're going to make, it's not going to be free tuition for international students. It's going to be a market. And so, it, it, you know, the UK universities went after that. The other country that did it in a very big way was Australia. 
Um, you know, Australia, I think it's almost a third of the student body is international uh, now at the at the undergraduate level. It's a very, very big, um, uh, big piece of the pie, and you get some of the major institutions where over 50% of their income is coming from international students um, at some of their big research universities because, you know, they're charging 30000 Australian dollars, and they'll do it to 20,000 international students. So that's, you know, that's $600 million right there. That's a, a big chunk of change for, for those institutions. And so the U.S. wasn't the first mover in this space, but uh, increasingly it's the dominant one, at least in in absolute numbers. Is that right? It's always been the dominant one, but again, not for these financial reasons. It's been, it's been because it's been such a talent magnet, right? So even while the U.K. and Australia were gaining more and more students who could pay, you know, dollars. In fact, you know, the U.S. was still hoovering in a couple of hundred thousand, maybe even a half million students a year, um, and a lot of that was. Uh, you know, to feed the massive research enterprise that you've got at, at U.S. universities, which is still, you know, by a considerable distance, the largest in the world. And it runs on foreign graduate students, at least in the in the STEM fields. And so growth has been uh, fairly steady for the past decade or so, but seems to have slowed considerably in the past handful of years. Can you walk us through some of those numbers? Yeah, so um, <laughs> I should get the numbers right in front of me here, actually. So, I mean, the, the, the you know, the, it's not that it's always been on an upward curve. There have been periods before where you've seen international student numbers go down. And in the U.S., that period was 2003 to 2005, which was kind of in the wake of 9-11 and the Iraq War. And I think there were certainly, there were a number of reasons, I think, where, where why international students were not, as interested in coming, and there were certainly some, there were a lot of countries for which the Department of Homeland Security wouldn't give out visas quite as easily, right? So you had a fewer Arab students coming in for for some time, um, and then that started to go up, and, and you see this around the world. You see increases of, you know, seven to fifteen percent a year um, in the number of international students going to destinations like Canada, like New Zealand, like Australia, UK, uh, US. That starts to level off in 2016. It actually starts to level off a little bit before um, Trump becomes uh, president, um, and then since then, I mean, you know, the numbers will differ a little bit. But you know, you're looking at a at a high, mid to high single digit uh, percentage point loss in the number of international students in the U.S. since 2016. Um, it's sometimes a little bit. There's always a bit of a lag in the student numbers because. Um, uh, the number that you take in, you know, it takes four years to graduate, right? So the the number of students you have now is is that's partly a trend result from 2015, right? Which are in turn decisions that were made in 2013 or 14 from a student perspective. So it does take a while for these things to 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 cycle through. So, so one of the big questions here is whether this recent uh, slowdown or even decline in the number of international students enrolled in the U.S. is a harbinger of something much larger if it sort of continues across cohorts and eventually shows up in the numbers, you know, four years from now as a, as a, a bigger change, right? Yeah, you could certainly see it um, coming in as a, as a, you know, you could imagine it getting into double digits. I think it would be unlikely to go past 20%. Um, I think it's very unlikely to go past 20% because, you know, whoever's in the White House, uh, American universities are a draw, right? I mean, there's a lot of high-quality institutions, and uh, and I think that will be a, a significant draw for a long time to come. 
So what's behind the slowdown? You just alluded to the possibility that the Trump administration, its presence in the White House is having some effect, but I imagine that there are other factors at play as well. How can we arbitrate between these different possible explanations and, and their implications? Yeah, I mean, it's very hard to to uh, to trace it directly, but I think uh, one of the things that is pretty clear is that the slowdown that we're seeing is not uh, being felt across the board in the United States. It's pretty clearly, um, you know, the research one universities are not feeling the pinch. Um, you know, I mean, it's, they're just not. So if you're if you're, I think the issue is if you're kind of a, a second or third tier institution, you tend to have higher tuition, and certainly the cost of tuition is higher in the U.S. for international students than it is in in Canada or Australia, for instance. Um, and so if you know, I think it's those. It's there's it, it. It impacts the value proposition. I think it's always been more of a challenge for second and third tier institutions charging forty thousand dollars a year for international students. That's that's a tough uh, sell in a lot of markets. And I think um, you know, I just think that 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 the Trump effect is probably sort of it's an extra thumb on the balance. It it may not be wholly decisive, but it's it's another. Uh, negative factor. It, it's one negative factor among several. And when you say the Trump effect, what is the sort of mechanism that you have in mind? Is it is it a diminution in America's appeal for some reason because of who's in the White House, or is it something more tangible, the policies that the administration has adopted? I think it's pretty... So, I mean, it's not that... I mean, there have certainly been some people who have been pushed out because of specific visa policies. I don't think that, I mean, you know, we're seeing stories from Harvard and, and other places on that kind of thing now. I don't think that's, those are not the kind, I mean, ASU, I think, had nine students in, in Arizona, had nine students turned away at the airport earlier this week. So yeah, you do see some of that, and that's the stuff that hits the headlines. Um, I think the bigger issue is just um, you're, you're seeing fewer applications. Um, and and so and that's the way longer term. That's where the big numbers, the the bigger effect is going to be. There's just fewer people who are interested in a uh, uh, in an education here. And I would say part of it you got to remember is not Trump. I would you know when you send your child abroad, one of the things that um, you're most concerned about, and survey after survey shows us, is security. And I would say that um, particularly for institutions in larger metropolitan areas the constant spate of mass shootings is probably not doing the U.S. any favors either. So if this recession is real and if it becomes more substantial in magnitude, who gets hit hardest? What are the consequences for institutions or even for American students? Yeah. Um, well, I mean, I don't think... It, I think the point is is that the... the so international students were always a a way to avoid the consequences of domestic uh, tuition declines, right? Um, the, you know, the, my government won't let me raise tuition on these students, or they won't let me take more out-of-state students, or they won't, um, or, you know, the, the, the demographics in the Northeast are terrible and everybody's losing students. Um, or in the case, I think, of, of liberal arts schools, uh, again, particularly in the Northeast, which is, you know, people, there's a drift away from liberal arts schools in the last, uh, number of years, and so you know, I think it's a it's more or less an iron law in higher education. If you give them, if you give institutions a choice between closing a budget deficit by cutting costs or raising revenue, they're going to take raising revenue every time. 
And so international students was largely a way of dealing with the cost crisis without actually changing your cost structure. Um, and I think if you look at what's happening, um, you know, it's the same institutions that were having a problem domestically. It's going to be those liberal arts institutions. It's going to be those second-tier privates that are charging $35,000, $40,000. They couldn't find enough domestic customers. Now it turns out it's not as easy to find international students uh, either, right? I mean, the IVs, the research ones, the public research ones, they're not going to have a problem. This isn't going to affect them at all. But those second-tier institutions, the thought of international students as a bit of a uh, get-out-of-jail-free card, that just disappeared. And so they're, and so they're, they are, they're going to have to deal with some, some cost issues. So you will see cuts in institutions, I suspect. Um, maybe not huge ones, but, um, you know, everybody's belt's going to be a little bit tighter. And I guess the question that raises for me is if that was the strategy that these institutions were increasingly relying on over time, depending more and more on a steadily growing number of international students enrolled, how viable of a long-term strategy was that? And is a temporary decline actually something that is just bringing forward something that was inevitable eventually uh, as citizens in states where public institutions had gone in this direction began to sort of ask questions about, uh, are there still spots for our own students? Yeah, and of course, I mean, you know, the equation is quite different in places where the the internet, the you know, in private, I think, you know, private institutions where they're charging thirty five, forty thousand dollars is a very different kind of a, a discussion than than you're going to get at public institutions. Uh, public institutions, I mean, I think you've already got some examples in the United States where people have said enough's enough. We we want to keep those students for you know domestically. I think the 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 arrangement between uh, the University of, of California and, and Governor Jerry Brown when he was when he was still governor. I mean, that was exactly what that was about, right? It was we we got to make sure that at least I think the deal is 75% of of UC seats uh, remain open to Californians. Um, and I think most institutions recognize that 20% beyond 20%, they were probably playing with fire. <laughs> Um, in, in terms of, of, of igniting local opposition, I think most of them were pretty careful about that. But yeah, I mean, I think I think you're right. Is you know, the the in the long run, the more revenue tactic is just a delaying tactic. You're kicking the can down the road. You do have to deal with your cost structure sometime. It, it's the areas in the Northeast, in particular, that are going to face a huge demographic decline at the end of this decade, where you're going to have a problem. That you know that you have seen really really big. Um, uh, you know, forecasts of, of drops in enrollment of 15, 20 percent by, by uh, I guess, around 2026, um, you know, when the, the 2008 generation turns 18, because there was a big drop in the birth rate around 2008. And I think a lot of institutions were gearing up their international numbers precisely to take advantage of that um, projected drop in enrollment. Um, if you can't rely on that, then there is a real crisis coming in about six years. I guess the other question that raises for me then is whether this uh, strategy of relying on international enrollment is one that has made institutions of higher education that engage in it more subject to risk outside of their control when it comes to managing their enrollment and ultimately their their budgets. If we're seeing these types of developments where we see a sudden fluctuation in the growth rate in international enrollment for reasons that yeah. seem to be outside of the control of the of the colleges and universities 
um, whether that is something that in and of itself should give us pause. Uh, maybe. I mean, yes, there, there is a greater risk. On the other hand, there's been, as, as I think everybody's rush into the space will tell you, there's also been quite a bit of reward, right? So, um, you know, you can't have one without the other. And I think there's, uh, I, I mean, I think at the end of the day, you, you have to be, if you're offering a good product at a reasonable price, um, this stuff is not going to matter to you. I think the issue really is the the ones who are not necessarily at the top of the, uh, you know, who are not particularly prestigious and not offering a, a particularly standout product, but are charging premium prices, and that should have been giving you pause even before you took on international students. My guest today has been Alex Usher, president of Higher Education Strategy Associates and author of Has President Trump Scared Away All the Foreign Students? Available now at EducationNext.org. Alex, thanks for being part of the podcast. Thank you very much. You've been listening to the Ednext Podcast. If you like what you've heard, be sure to subscribe on whatever platform you use so that you don't miss an episode. And especially if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. It helps us find more listeners and more listeners to find us.